Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Thank you to everyone who supports this show and all of the shows in the Major Spoilers Podcast Network. If you are not already, you can become a Major Spoilers member by signing up at patreon.com slash majorspoilers. The Major Spoilers podcast covers news, reviews, and of course, spoilers, and goes into details about the topics discussed. So if you haven't read, listened, or watched the items we talk about, you might want to come back later. I'm Matthew. I'm Ashley. I'm Rodrigo. And I'm Steven, and you're listening to the Major Spoilers Podcast, the podcast for pop culture and comic fans. In this issue, after 50 long years, a comic book icon puts on some pants, and you are there. We'll delve into video games, Superman smashing a certain secret order that holds a hateful grudge against them soggy bottom boys, and you'll see a whole new era of X, all that plus our usual insights into stuff we all love, recorded in front of a live studio ostrich. So hold on tight while Uncle Phil throws you out, because the Major Spoilers podcast is on the air! Just a reminder, uh, ostrich o- ostrich omelets, uh, not one, not not a meal for one person. More like a meal for ten. Ha ha! So there you go. Hey, welcome to the Major Spoilers Podcast, issue eight four nine. Ashley and Matthew and Rodrigo are all here, and I'm glad you are here listening to us as we talk Bibles about some Bam cool Bam things. And all of their friends. Oh man, there are so much things that we need to talk about. But first, let's get to some news. <laughs> Joker continues to dominate the box office. There's that Fortnite stunt. And then Kevin Feige is named the chief creative officer over at Marvel. Spin that wheel of destiny. Let's see where it lands. Oh, Kevin Feige. His responsibilities are growing ever larger. The guy that was behind the Marvel Cinematic Universe and bringing it to life. Then, you know, got control of the entire Marvel Studios, Uh is president of Marvel Studios, and now, as of today, he is responsible for all of the creative direction that Marvel storytelling is going to go across publishing, film, TV, and animation, because he has been named Marvel's chief creative officer. Now, he is replacing Joe Quesada, correct? No, he's not. So here's what happens. This is the breakdown. This gets really confusing. This is all business stuff for people. Uh, Feige continues to report to Walt Disney Studio co-chairman and chief executive officer Alan Horn and co-chairman Alan Bergman. Dan Buckley remains president of Marvel Entertainment. He will continue to oversee publishing both the creative and editorial. He reports to Feige. Buckley also oversees publishing operations, including sales, creative services, gaming license, etc. He reports to, for those things, Ike Perlmutter, which is where a lot of these problems kind of arise, I think, especially between those two. Joe Casada continues to serve as executive vice president and creative director of Marvel. He reports to Buckley. So there's like two steps between Casada and uh, Feige. Feige. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, Sana Aminat uh, will okay. continue to be the vice president of content and character development. Uh, Editor-in-chief and head global editor, C.B. Sobolski and Stephen Wacker, vice president of creative and content development, continue their roles reporting to Buckley. 
So that is how that is broken down. That is according to uh, The Hollywood Reporter and Variety and some other people have reported that too. So that's kind of the breakdown. So right now, Joe Casada still has his job. What about so Jeff it? Loeb? Ah, so that's where a lot of this uh, gets a little interesting because there have been some talks and we've seen this happen, right? Ashley, we have seen... Yes. Marvel TV, which is where Loeb was in charge of all the stuff that was going on at Netflix and the stuff that was on ABC and the other shows that were supposed to be going on over at Hulu, like Ghost Rider, which was canceled recently. He's also in charge of Runaways and, and uh, Cloak and Dagger. We've seen them pull away from that live action TV stuff in favor of the adult animation stuff. And I think that, and maybe this is my read on it, Ashley, I don't know what your read is, but it feels like maybe that is the reason why... Feige was ultimately pushed up to the chief creative officer because he's also taking on the TV uh, control away from Loeb. Yeah, I think that's definitely part of it because we know that he is overseeing the Marvel TV shows that directly tie into the Mm -hmm. movies because God forbid we are just allowed to watch one continuity (laughs) and don't have to... Yeah, all that Disney Plus stuff that he's in charge of. So it makes sense that he would take over... The TV side. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I had made a a mention of a a rumor that it was Feige who stepped in at the last minute and saved, along with Tom Holland apparently, saved that Spider-Man Sony Marvel deal. And that somebody may have screwed up royally. And that I said, hey, we should be watching for business shifts in the next couple of weeks. And here we go with this being the first um, kind of repositioning for this. And I'm not saying this this is Loeb's fault at all. But it just seems like as you're trying to consolidate your power and as you're trying to streamline maybe the production process for big ideas going forward, that this might be how you do it. Now, the weird part is for me, Matthew and and Rodrigo, um, Buckley still oversees publishing operations, sales, creative services, games, licensing and events. But Feige uh, will oversee storytelling across mediums, including publishing film, TV and animation. So give me your yep. reactions to that, because to me, that means that that uh, Kevin will be creating all the big events and handing that off to Casada and team to deal with or Buckley and team to deal with. Mm-hmm. So I'm not really sure what I mean. Buckley just seems to be the more business side of the Marvel operations at this point. It's to me, it sounds like synergy. It sounds like they are trying to make the comic book side and the film side fit together better. And since the film side is more, you know, successful, they're going to try and have the guy who's been pushing the right ideas on the film side, right, of course, being, you know, profitable and bring that over to the comic side, which honestly, I think could use the help. I'm not saying that Sobolski is is to res- is responsible for the things that are happening under his watch, but there have been a lot of things in the last few years that I'm just kind of like. Guys, you have to think about the implications of something like, you know, Captain America becoming a fascist or some of the storyline beats and character beats that you're doing and trying to make this all fit together. It's it's not going to happen because you're not thinking about what happens afterwards. So it it really feels to me like uh, here's an additional guy who has ideas that we've seen are good, but we're going to make sure that nobody actually loses their position. Okay, Rodrigo, what are your thoughts? Uh, my thoughts are, I, I have two. The first one, okay. I, I have a normal thought and, and a straight-up tinfoil hat thought. Okay, my norm, let's hear the my normal, normal thought. One, 
okay, yeah, the normal one is um, right now Feige can do no wrong, and Marvel's just like let's just let's just hook him onto whatever else we can, and if he can, you know, reach down and and might us up some readership for our books, then so much the better. If not, there's three people below him to still do that job, and he actually doesn't have to worry about it, except maybe for some adjustments or just some synergy type stuff where it's like hey guys can we like put a bunch of black widow stuff on everybody's covers because we're about to do the movie right because marvel's bad at that Mm -hmm. um so maybe having uh a big boss daddy now tell you to do that that'll help so that's my normal version of this um tinfoil tinfoil hat hat moment rodrigo yeah everybody put your tinfoil hats on okay make sure they're really tin because aluminum actually amplifies the mind control waves yeah. So, so here's here's what I picture. I picture a, a like a boardroom, and there's like all these like Disney guys and Feige's there, and they're like, oh yeah, money, money, Marvel, rah, 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 rah. right? And uh, this little guy in a lab coat runs in and shows one of them like this like tablet, and it says that at the rate that Marvel is burning through decent storylines. They will exhaust all of Marvel's back catalog within the next ten years, right? <laughs> because if you look at like Iron Man is done, you can't do any more Iron Man st- stuff because Iron Man's dead, right? And in the same movie, they did like Armor Wars and Demon in a Bottle and everything, right? Everything that was good about Iron Man just went into four movies, maybe eight movies, you know, if you count the fact that Iron Man wasn't everything. Um, so this is a move to create more new MCU-friendly content for the future, to basically turn this, because so far Marvel has been a field, and you can walk around the field and find interesting things that somebody left there. It's like, what's this? Oh, Jack Kirby was here. Look at this crazy thing I found. Let's make this a movie. And they want to turn that field into a farm. They want to like specifically put talent towards seeding this co- these comics that will eventually turn into Marvel movies in a much more like like in a I don't like I don't want to say like a factory way, but in a much more uh, deliberate way. Like this is what you're writing for. This is what this needs to be. This needs to have these like themes and, and, and things so that later on it can become a movie much more easily and to cut down on all of these like other wacky experiments that might be happening. That's, that's my idea is that this is like basically trying to rein in really the, the, the house of ideas Mm -hmm. into like an idea factory, like that actually performs the way you want it. Well, if I busy. can I can push that a little bit further, not just for Marvel, but maybe Disney as a whole. I mean, we've seen yeah. Disney, I don't want to say stumbling, but they seem to rely on all their path, past properties, right, Ashley, to where they don't have to come up with new creative ideas and they don't have to repay the people before uh, for their animation stuff, and they can just they can just use well, this. Well, that's so the they, Disney they... model now, isn't it? Right. But, uh, thanks, well, that's... Alan Menken, for illuminating that during the course of Aladdin. So maybe it's not just over all of Marvel, but maybe they're grooming him to be all of all of Walt Disney, 
And again, I said that we were seeing the first domino being put into place. And I'm going to say it is now October of 2019. By 2021, you're going to see, providing there isn't some major catastrophe on his part, Kevin will be moved into a, a CCO position for all of Walt Disney Studios. I so mean, that would seem to be the trajectory, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's... I'm not really prepared to, like, comment on whether or not I think that's a good thing or not because he just stepped into this right, right. new position at Marvel. Um, I'm sure a lot of people would be excited by that at face value. Um, but we have seen other people get it, like... Um, uh, over on the DC side, like we all thought Diane Nelson was going to be head of Warner Brothers. And then, oh, yeah. And she should have, you been. know, she had some um, personal issues and had to step away from that position. So um, I think it's, I think it's interesting that you bring that up because this almost feels like a lateral move because it's so much of what he's going to be doing with this new job title. And I'm certain a pretty significant pay bump was what he was doing already. Yes. Um, so it'll be interesting to see too if if or who kind of steps up to fill what his previous position was. Mm -hmm. But I I, think, I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I I really think he's going to be good. Yeah, no, I I think he's really going to be over all of Walt Disney studios in two years or less. Uh, We'll see what happens. Uh, Also, that may be tied into a crazy rumor. I heard this week that now Disney is considering maybe paying or offering Sony $4 billion to buy back all of Spider-Man. So there may be some of uh, this, positioning might have something to do with that crazy rumor. My concern, Matthew, in all of this, especially when we're looking at the movies and comic books being more in line with one another, we saw this happen in 89, 89, 90, and then 92 when Batman Returns came out, when DC Editorial was told by Warner Brothers, hey, make that comic book Batman look like the movie Batman. And that wasn't necessarily a great thing. Well, I mean, that kind of external... uh... They call them notes, I think, in Hollywood. It's not something that you're ever going to avoid. But I also feel like if you look at what's coming out of Marvel and, you know, to an equal extent out of DC, sometimes new ideas aren't necessarily going to be a bad thing. One of the things that, to me, emblemizes the last 10 years of Marvel is not we made a successful franchise out of a raccoon and a talking tree it's we're going to make hit monkey a thing regardless of whether anybody cares or not hit monkey will be a hit and we will make sure that it is a hit so maybe having somebody come in and say guys here's your new uh, corrective person who's going to tell you some things and go maybe stop trying to make fetch happen with the hit monkey that said one of the things that they're planning is a hit monkey cartoon so you know i may be just whistling in the dark but it's not necessarily bad that there's going to be that kind of input. It really does depend on a, what those notes are and B whether the editorial people can do it in such a way, the creators can do it in such a way that it's not obviously thumbprints in your sugar cookie. So bottom line from everybody, let's just say you had some money to go buy some, some Marvel stock or some Disney stock right now. And you've heard this news. Does this make you want to, Buy stock, sell stock, or just kind of wait and see. Rodrigo. Uh, I would buy, not because I necessarily think that he's going to do great, but because, again, I feel that people see that he can do no wrong. 
So this is a this is a good time before he actually screws up to buy up the stock and then sell it before that happens. Hopefully. All right, Matthew. I would say that while I'm overall kind of bearish, that doesn't necessarily mean you shouldn't consider this to be a good and exciting time. I just feel like we've seen a lot of possible changes that have shaken down to be literally nothing, and this may be that. Ashley. Well, I know nothing about stocks, so I don't know when it's good to buy or sell them because well, I am afraid of buy things it, buy like it that. Buy it when it's cheap and sell it when it's high. Buy low, sell high, exactly. I, I don't know what that means. So I don't know if I don't know if I can make a recommendation under the fictional um, thing that like like idea that you posited to us. I know people are really excited about it, but I don't I don't know. I just don't have anything to say because I don't understand the concept. I'm going to I'm going to go with Rodrigo at this point. I think now if you're and I've, I said this back in the 80s and I regret it. I told my worst enemy in high school. She was like, I've got this money to buy stock. What should I buy? And I said, buy Disney. And she's like, Disney sucks right now. And I'm like, no, seriously, buy Disney. And three years later, she had her stock had split three times. So um, my suggestion is buy Disney at any time. But specifically, I think right now, I think a lot of people are going to be super positive about this news, and I think that they're going to see this as a good plus for Disney. Not That's not a commentary on Disney Plus, which launches in a month. Uh, but I think that people are going to see this as a net positive for Marvel and Disney. And so people are going to be interested in investing in Disney at this point. And then in the next two years, hold on to that stock. And then in two years before it, before it dips, um, or, you know, if providing that there's no screw-ups, uh, keep that stock. Uh, but if it starts to look like it's going to dip, then sell out while it's while it's still high and make a bunch of money off of that deal. So I think this is maybe a net positive for Disney uh, and Marvel overall. But we will see. More information as it warrants right here at Major Spoilers and Majorspoilers.com. Um, Matthew had mentioned some gaming. If you want to hear us talk about gaming, uh, we spend a little bit of time talking about that Fortnite stunt over in our pre-show that you can only get when you become a patron at patreon.com slash major spoilers. Not only do we talk about Fortnite, Ashley drops a lot of uh, F-bombs uh, during some discussions about comic it conventions. <laughs> it might have um, been me. Oh, it might have been Matthew. It's so hard to tell you two apart. Haha. <laughs> um, and also we talk about, what was the other thing we talked about, Matthew? Oh, uh, continuity in comics and what we what we like about continuity in comic books and what we don't like. So we'll have all of that over in the Major Spoilers pre-show. Again, you can only get that when you become a $5 and higher, $5 per month. Uh, we don't charge you per episode. We charge you per month. So a mere $5 per month gets you access to that, the Flashback Podcast, and a whole lot more only at patreon.com slash major spoilers. Speaking of spoilers, let's get into some reviews. All right, Rodrigo, why don't you uh, hit on us with uh, Indivisible? From who is this five or who is this five oh five games SOS okay so what is five oh five games what are they what's this indivis indivisible game and why should we be paying attention to it all right so uh, the first reason why you should be paying attention to it is because I reviewed the beta version of this game on this show like five years ago ah okay and I've been excited about that game ever since um. And uh, it's finally out. It came out uh, October 8th, um, like right when I was getting ready to record, I got my copy in the mail and I was like, oh, I can't play this. I need to do major spoilers. And then I threw it on the ground. <laughs> um, and then I went out and bought a different one, another one. Um, so 
Indivisible uh, is a, a platformer RPG hybrid with like action game elements, mm-hmm. which is probably difficult for to to, to imagine uh, if you're not used to those types of games. It's not the first one of its kind, definitely. There are other games that are like that. Basically, what that means is you're running around, you're jumping on platforms, and then when you encounter an enemy, you go into a an RPG kind of turn-based type situation, um, except that it's actually not really turn-based. Each ally that you control and each enemy have a speed at which their attacks refresh, and so you are uh, you can launch an attack, and the enemy can launch an attack as soon as an attack is ready to go. Um, so uh, you play with four characters, and each of those characters are mapped to one of your buttons in your controller. So I'm playing on the PS4, so uh, one of the characters goes with triangle, one of them goes with a circle, one of them goes with X. It's an X, uh, and so forth. Um, so, uh, immediately, like right off the bat, you start getting a lot of, like, lots of characters. And what you start to figure out is that some of these characters' abilities kind of combo together. So, you have characters that can launch an enemy up into the air, preventing the enemy from acting or recovering. And then you have characters that can shoot that enemy out of the air or jump up and hit them and that's what their attack what that specific attack is so when you link all of those attacks together you uh, prevent the enemy from acting you deal more damage to them and you get some bonus points that you can use towards other things so you kind of that's that's kind of how the game uh plays out um i'm very bad at it Uh, and like the reason why I like turn-based RPGs is because I don't have to do anything fast, right? It's like right, a right. battle. It's like, what do you do? And I'm like, do I want to cast a spell on this thing, or should I just, should I just hit it with my sword? I'll just hit it with my sword. <laughs> and, you know, it's like that's that's how I prefer to play. That's what I've been doing with Fire Emblem, right? It's like here's this giant sweeping battle, but everybody just everybody's sitting there waiting their turn to like run over and hit somebody. Um, but this game, you actually, you have to like actively uh, pay attention to what's happening. You have to block when enemies attack you. I mean, you don't have to, but you'll take a lot more damage. So you're attacking, you're blocking, you're like queuing up combos, you're activating other abilities. Um, there's characters that have modes. So you can like switch one character, like, a, not all characters do, but some characters are like, okay, well, this character is now flying, and in flying mode, their attacks are different. So you have to like pay attention to that and do that. And it's like, does the party need healing? Did I even gear up a healer? It's like I should, I needed to have done this already, right? So it can be very combat can be very frantic, which is probably more a feature than a bug. But to me, I, I get a little like, blah, but I'm just learning. Uh, the game, and I'm very slow at it. I'm sure that eventually uh, I'll, I'll have some sort of like uh, basic competence to it. Um, so that's the play style. The uh, 
aesthetically, this game is really fantastic. It looks really good, uh, and it sounds really good, and it feels really good. Um, the characters are really well designed. Um, there's lots of voice acting, um, and there's like more than a dozen characters that you interact with. Each one of them has a voice actor. Uh, the voice acting is really good. The characters are really well written. They're a lot of fun. They look really cute. Um, if you're familiar with Skullgirls, this is the same studio that does Skullgirls. Mm, so if okay. you like that art style, Indivisible is similar, but Skullgirls, I feel, definitely has this like rough, like purposeful roughness to it because it's a fighting game. Indivisible is really polished. It looks like really nice and shiny. Anytime that your character that you're moving around in the in the platforms on screen, you can just like take a step back and look at that screen. And it's actually like a pretty good um just like a pretty good tableau, right? Just like a good frame, like an interesting frame. Um and uh which is kind of emphasized by the fact that your set uh save points are these shrines. So you get to a shrine and you save and then maybe you stop playing. And then when you log in again, um you see your character by the shrine like there's no game screen the game screen is the last place where you were your character by the shrine and it says indivisible above the shrine and each shrine is designed to be in such a place and in such a way that it forms a, a good presentation with the title and like the like press start screen right and there's a lot about this game that shows this like deep, like aesthetic commitment to it. Uh, it's also very diverse. It like has some Eurocentric stuff, but it's mostly it's mostly kind of Asian. Like it's got Indian stuff, it's got East Asian stuff, uh, it's got Latin American stuff, it's got African stuff. Um, again, some European stuff, but usually, again, talking about something like uh, your big RPG releases like Fire Emblem or Final Fantasy, they tend to be even, you know, for games that were made in Japan, they tend to be very Eurocentric, uh, which this game is like very explicitly and purposefully not. Um, I would definitely recommend this for anybody who likes RPGs, uh, not necessarily for somebody who is like hella into platformers. Like if you played Celeste and you won a new challenge, this isn't going to be it. This platforming is... Um, part of an experience rather than you know meant to challenge your your skill at you know jumping without getting hit um but i am i'm really enjoying it i'm pretty early on um and and i guess i should point out that i haven't encountered any bugs yet because more and more that seems to be a thing it's like you you get a new game and it's like weirdly buggy but i haven't found anything yet in this game and i hope that i don't uh, because again, it seems like a lot of time and effort was put into it. You know, this game was crowdfunded, and uh, it has finally, years later, been complete. Um, and uh, I'm I'm just kind of happy to have it. Uh, I'm gonna give it four slices of meatloaf. Very good, very very good. And that uh, is available for everyone now, or is it still in some kind of a beta release or? No, it's it's out. It's out out. Okay. So you can get it on Steam, you can get it on PlayStation and Xbox and it's coming out for the Switch. It hasn't come out yet for the Switch, but but it will. 
All right. Very cool. Thank you for that, uh, Rodrigo. Matthew, last week, was it the final Powers of Ten, or is this uh, still midway through the season? This is the final episode of Powers of Ten. Break it down for us. Sorry, I'm having an MC Hammer moment. So, Powers of Ten, which uh, together with House of X, or combined the Hoxpox, uh, relaunching the entire X-Men universe. Powers of Ten takes place in year one of the X-Men and year 1000. If you haven't been paying attention, be aware there are some big spoilers coming up, but since it's a weekly series, you probably had to keep on top of things to avoid the spoilers. So if you haven't been spoilered and I spoiler you, sorry, here's the deal. In year one of the X-Men, Professor Charles Xavier is happy with himself because he's figured it out. He has a dream, you see, and he knows how to make it a reality. And he sits on a park bench in a lovely park and thinks about how great it's going to be. And a woman comes and sits next to him and says, why are you smiling? And he's like, I have a dream. And she's like, it's not a dream if you make it real, Charles. And it turns out that this woman is Moira McTaggart, actually using her maiden name of Moira Kinross. And she tells him to read her mind. That's when we cut to the year 1000. And in the year 1000, the mutant population is basically devastated and destroyed, and the few remaining living mutants are living in a zoo under the control of a bunch of sort of cybernetic, sort of not human folk. One thing that I will say about every issue of both House of X and Powers of X, or Powers of Ten, rather, these are some trippy books. They do require some thinking. They require you to have read the previous issues and maybe keep a little scorecard in your head. And that's a good thing because they are literally relaunching roughly a third of the Marvel Universe with this. Oh, it's yeah. a bad I mean, thing. Starting this week, we get uh, X-Men. Then we've got Excalibur. We've got Marauders. We have Wolverine. We have a new Deadpool. And there's like, did I say X-Force already? Yep, I believe Moira is getting a solo book, Moira X. Yeah, so there's all these X titles just blowing up after this issue, starting this week. Oh, absolutely. And a thousand years in the future, Moira learned the important truth. She learned that the humans, the uh, Homo sapiens, saw the Homo superiors, the mutants, and thought to themselves, well, evolution is no match for genetic engineering. So every time there's a new mutant, we'll just create 10 superhumans to destroy them, which is what the Sentinels and the Nimrods have been doing, not trying to eliminate the mutants, but trying to analyze them and trying to figure out their powers so that they could create superhuman humans so that the mutants would never be able to take over. And that's when Charles Xavier passes out and throws up. It is a really shocking book, and I want you to know that that is a really kind of a game-changing announcement for the X-Men and the Marvel Universe. That's the part of this book that I'm willing to tell you about. There are some things in here that I'm not willing to tell you about because they literally are thunderbolts and lightning, very, very frightening. B, I'm not going to sing the high part because I don't have a falsetto for the Galileo, but this book explains a little bit of how House of X, where Professor Xavier and his dead best friend and many of his dead protégés and Apocalypse and Exodus and a bunch of other people 
are now the core of the X-Men. So if you said to yourself, I really wish that I could read a really crazy story that finally upends the X-Men status quo and not only makes Magneto a good guy, but makes Apocalypse and Exodus and all of these other Schmendricks, these people who've been trying to destroy the universe, key players in the X-Men mythos, then I may have a comic book for you and you may want to read it. You also may want to read it for the nerd factor of um, a performance by Dazzler with backing vocals by Banshee. If you know anything about Banshee and if you know anything about Dazzler, you can tell that that's going to be a, that's going to be a mind blowing moment. But the end of powers of X has some puzzling parts to it, but it's all very intentionally puzzling. It's designed to make you go, Hey, there's nine new X books coming out and I've got to read them all. And it does that really well. It does its job. And Frankly, when you're dealing with something this big and this almost overwhelming, you have to make sure that it's something big and crazy and nuts enough to bring people back. It is four slices of meatloaf for powers of 10, number six. I will be getting the X-Men relaunch, number one, next month or next no, week it's, or whatever it's this it week. comes it's out. Today. It's today. Ooh, it comes out today. I'm going to go, go get it today. Yeah. Go, this go is get the it. past for me, so you're the future people. Uh, question. Having mm -hmm. let's let's imagine that I've never read the X Men or that I read the X Men in the nineties and just had a horrible experience with it. Okay. Is House of X Powers of X new reader friendly? Up to a point. Um, you do have to have kind of a basic mm, gene pool of who these people are, for lack of a better so word. So if I've read uh what's that series, Ashley, the um I'm going to cover the entire history of the X-Men in, in one volume. Um, I can literally never remember what that one is called. I just call it the Ed Pisker X-Men <laughs> because Ed, Ed Pisker, I, I don't that's know it. what it's called. So if I read um, those two volumes of books, mm -hmm. it, well, that just because I know that you've grounding. read it. Okay, cool. Grand right. Design. That's Grand Design. Grand that's Design. It. That's it. Yeah, so if I've read that, I'll read. Confused with Sticks Grand Illusion, which is prog rock from the 80s. Which is a really good album, so anyway. It really is, yeah. Not as good as Paradise Theater, but still good. And as with Powers of X, definitely something that you want to come back and go over and over and over until you finally figure out what it's all about, because your neighbors don't got it made. All right, thank you for that, Matthew. Um, hey, you know what? Comics these days, all they're doing is catering to SJWs. And man, and... remember back in the old <laughs> days when... When comics didn't used to cater to SJWs, well, let me tell you no. a little something about Superman. Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> Superman has always been fighting for social justice. And Superman was so popular that it was, what, a, about two years after he launched, maybe even a year after the, the first appearance of Superman, Superman went to the airwaves. He got a radio show uh, that ran up until the 1950s. Uh, and Superman in those comics, we had the introduction of kryptonite in the, the, in the uh, radio uh, drama. We had the introduction, the introduction of, the, of Kansas is in there as well. I think yeah. so. And all, and also the, uh, that he was, uh, a little bit more about his alien heritage, uh, came up in the radio drama. Uh, Superman also took on Nazis. Uh, wow. there's a great, there's a one that I just recently had finished listening to, um, the Adam man and the Adam man in Metropolis where a guy who's literally powered by kryptonite, a Nazi guy, uh, is coming in and uh, trying to wreak havoc. And then there is the Hate Mongers organization, which is, uh, this was in 1945 when that uh, series came out, which was basically 
um, any kind of a hate group. This is where Unity House and Jimmy Olsen's baseball team first start to appear in the hate monger organization. And then in 1946, we had the series uh, Superman and the Clan of the Fiery Cross. Now, you don't have to be, uh, hopefully you don't have to have it spelled out to you, but this is Superman taking on the KKK in that series. And if you have been listening to, I haven't been doing it as much recently, but about three months ago, four months ago, on my Saturday Twitch streams and on the Friday, uh, finally Friday before the stream start, I was actually playing the radio serial Superman uh, uh, versus the Clan of the Fiery Cross. And so you could hear that entire story play out of how uh, the Lee family has moved to Metropolis and Jimmy's, uh, the, the uh, I forget what the kids, Tommy Lee is this really great pitcher and Jimmy puts him into the place of the pitcher on uh, his baseball team. And this makes the... Um, his name's not Joe Riggs, but it's Riggs something is the kid's last name. Makes him really angry, so he goes and tells his uncle, and his uncle is the leader of the clan of the Fiery Cross, and they devise a plan to scare the Asian family out of Metropolis and get them back to where they belong because they want America to be pure and everything. And, of course, the radio drama ends up with Superman showing up, rescuing uh, Tommy Lee and uh, Perry White and basically showing and pulling the curtain aside on what the KKK was doing at the time. And in fact, uh, the Riggs character, the main villain in this piece, in the radio drama, uh, he he is so in, involved in his own hate belief system that when he goes to the head of the, of the clan of the Fiery Cross, they don't call him the KKK in the radio show, but it, when he goes to the head organizer, the national organizer, the national organizer is like, are you kidding me? Have you fallen into these rubes? We're just here stirring up this hate so we can make money, lots and lots of money. And if you're ruining that, you're jeopardizing our entire financial organization. So it really shows that the Clan of the Fiery Cross is just a, a sham organization hoping to take money from the rubes, which is kind of what was revealed in the Hatemongers organization piece in the, the previous radio drama. Now, the reason I'm bringing all this up is because this week from DC Comics is uh, Superman smashes the Clan from Gene Yang and I don't know how to say the, uh, the artist's name, um, Garugi? Guri Hurry? I don't know how you Guri say his Hiru. last name. Guri Hiru. Guri Hiru, actually, I believe, is a collective of artists. Well, let me just say, this collective of artists bangs it out of the park. This is a five uh, slices of meatloaf comic just for the art alone. The art in this is fun and fantastic, and it's action-packed, and it's cartoony, and it's everything that you want in, well, it's everything I want in a uh, comic book. The, the, this is just beautiful, 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 beautiful. Now, that being said, this is an adaptation of that Superman versus the Clan of the Fiery Cross story. And it is a, I don't want to say this is a loose adaptation because it's still f focusing on the hate group that's the clan. The, the, the Lee family is still there. T Tommy Lee is still part of this story. Uh, Superman is in this comic way more than he was in the radio drama. Um, but I still think that this is a really good adaptation that's that's worth picking up. Uh, so some of the changes that are different. Uh, Superman first started to fly in the comic books. Here in this comic book, they still have him running around and leaping, which I'm a big fan of the leaping and not the flying. Uh, but uh, in 1946, Superman is most definitely flying around. Even in the radio drama, he's flying around. Although the, here they have him running on the telephone lines, Matthew, so he doesn't injure anybody. The radio um, program was actually the origin of Superman actually flying. Uh, well, actually, 
I don't want to um actually you, but uh, I went and did some research on this because I wanted to double check. While it's depicted in the radio drama that he does fly all the time, there is a 1941 comic book issue that has him flying like long time before anyone else picked it up because they had a new artist on board and he just assumed that Superman flew. So it actually mm-hmm. predates the the radio flying from from my research that I was that I was doing on this. Um, but regardless, that's a major change. The other major change that's going on in this book is, and the reason why I mentioned the Adam Man and the Adam Man of Metropolis and the Hate Mongers organization is because this first, and this is a three, I want to say it's a three book set uh, for Superman Smashes the Clan. Um, the first part of this book really brings in parts of the Hate Mongers organization and parts of the Adam Man and part of the, the Krypton storylines from the previous um, the radio dramas and tries to force them in. I don't want to say force them in, but puts them into this story because they become important elements as the story goes on. First of all, it shows that Superman is, you know, pro-America, doesn't like Nazis, doesn't like bigotry, doesn't like hatred. The kryptonite is brought in because as Superman is exposed to the kryptonite, unlike the radio play where he where uh, Bud Collier was on vacation and they just needed a guy to come in and go for, you know, two weeks. Um, The kryptonite is brought in because it starts to get Superman to realize that, oh, I'm an alien from another planet. And Superman is more worried that he's the green, scary kind of uh, Martian Manhunter alien as opposed to, you know, I look human just like everyone else looks human. And these things are important because while the radio drama looks at Tommy Lee as the central character of the Lee family, uh, Yang comes in and adds a brand new character to the story in the form of Tommy's sister, Roberta, who we kind of see all of this playing out through her eyes. And she's a very smart young girl. She's Tommy's younger sister. Uh, she's the one that starts to put two and two together about who might have kidnapped her brother to go out and tar and feather him. She's the one that's starting to see a connection between uh, Superman, but she's also the one who's caught between two worlds of living in Chinatown and living under the old ways of family traditions and trying to fit in with the rest of the world. So in a sense, we see this kind of parallel storytelling going on between Roberta's identity as as a foreigner and Superman's identity as a foreigner, and then both trying to come to grips with xenophobia and racism at a time when the Klan is getting a resurgence, uh, or just getting a resurgence but about to fall apart in the 1940s and 50s. Uh, so I found that part very, very fascinating. Um, but other than that, this book is following the radio drama fairly closely, with the exception of focusing on Superman as an alien and the Roberta character that is added in here. I just found the story really, really fascinating. I found it really, really good. I found it um, not pandering at all. I, I found it very on target for what the author and the uh, and the artists are trying to do here. Uh, I think this is a must read for everyone. I really hope that this is a volume that gets collected. And I hope, and I hope DC is listening to this. I hope DC works some deal with, um, who is it? Random House? Random House Books? Who's the one that gets all the books into the schools? Scholastic? Scholastic, yes. They need to work out a deal with Scholastic on this and get this on that weekly reader uh, book buying list because I think this is a really good story. This is a really good, important piece to get into not every school, but to try to get this into as many hands as possible. The writing is phenomenal. The storytelling is fantastic. It is, and Matthew and I were talking uh, the other couple of weeks ago on Dueling Review about how I didn't like a straight up adaptation of the 
Cobra Kai uh, story that was going on over at IDW Publishing. This is different enough and new enough, but is still exploring the same themes as the uh, as the radio drama. And of course, a lot of people probably have never heard of the radio drama. Um, I found this fascinating. I found it a page turner. I found it me wanting to go back and just look at the art again and again and again, because the art is so dang good, you guys. This is a must-have book. It is $8. It's $7.99. A lot of pages in this book. It's totally worth it. Five out of five slices of meatloaf. It is out this week. Go out and buy it. Go out and buy it. This is a must-have, must-read book, and I found it fascinating from top to bottom because you really get to look at the immigrant experience uh, and the minority experience uh, from two different viewpoints, one from Superman and one from the Lee family. So it's is really good. Go and go and get it. Go and check it out. All of you, go and read it today. Yep. That's By the way, Guri Hero is apparently a team, Shifuyu Sasaki and Naoko Kawano. So it is actually two female artists working together as Guri Hero. Uh, have you guys seen this this artwork for Superman Smashes the Clan? Maybe all you've seen is... Um, is the cover page where the baseball bat is being cracked over Superman's chest. It's not the cover. It's actually the, one of the last Wasn't pages. Wasn't this of supposed to be part of the DC Ink, Ink the and or yes. Zoom and yes. or whatever that line was? Like, is this still DC Kids or whatever it's branded as now? Oh, uh, let me look on the cover page here. Um, because it is a three-part series, let me see on the cover page if it pops up fast enough for because me. Because I thought those were just specifically standalone graphic novels. So they, I'm mi- so, they might be. I'm just perplexed. <laughs> it is it, but it is in the it is in our DC um uh reading, you know, uh, DC gives us access to review copies. This was a review copy that they sent with this one being part of it, with the changes in this. Oh, it doesn't include the cover image, but let me uh, zoom in here and see if there's anything on the inside cover that says uh, published by DC Comics, DC Comics. It doesn't say anything about DC Inc. or DC Zoom that I see in here, it but was, you're correct. It was, I think, it was originally supposed to be... Yeah. It was originally supposed to be part of the Zoom announcement, so... Uh, this also has the uh, Superman with the black shield and the red yeah. S. So yeah, the the, the, I, I just can't I just can't reiterate enough. The art in this is just magically good. It is so, so good. Uh, and then the story just top to bottom. This is a, this is a must have book. If you guys aren't buying this book this week, you're missing out. Don't buy this in the digital format. Go out and buy a physical copy of this if you can get your hands on it, because it's that good. This is something you're, you're going to want to keep around. All right, Ashley, you're going to ra- uh, wrap us up this week with another comic book that comes out this week. Yes. So every once in a while, DC and Marvel will do these things where they'll make these big anthologies and they'll collect a bunch of stories and they'll reprint them and it'll be wonderful and magical. And this week we are getting Wonder Woman Giant. Now, Wonder Woman Giant, I I found to be mildly misleading uh, (laughs) because it is primarily credited to um, Amanda Connor and Jimmy Palmiotti, who are um, amazing and perfect and could do no wrong because they um, actually pen an original story in this collection now i love wonder woman i love them as a creative team i have no issue with this book existing and even though i did enjoy it i'm kind of left scratching my head about why this book is coming out now because it's a reprint of 
Uh, some really great Wonder Woman stories that I had read entirely before. So I'm going to admit I gave a cursory glance to at best. The Wonder Woman, uh, the new original Wonder Woman story features Wonder Woman and our contemporary Harley Quinn because with Pamiotti and Connor, I guess DC just won't let them touch anything if it's not Harley Quinn adjacent in some way. And I get it because they've made DC a tremendous amount of money doing that. It's a really cute story. Um, it's fun. But I think this collection just would have been better coming out either closer to the Christmas, not Christmas, closer to the holiday, the non-denominational winter festivity <laughs> holiday season. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to offend anyone. Um, or like Wonder Woman uh, 84 is coming out next year. You know, like it feels mm -hmm. very much like um, an issue that was tacked on this week because DC doesn't have a ton coming out because that's how scheduling goes. You know, you have your peaks and your valleys and and i found it i found the original story delightful the reprints like i said they're all they're all good stories but i just i don't understand why it's happening now and i'm so baffled yeah, by I'm, it and that was why when i read it i wanted to bring it up because i was like why is this happening now? i'm curious i'm curious first of all i believe that uh palmiotter palmiotti and connor have a new harley quinn series that was just announced too uh but i also wonder if this is not the walmart book you know so walmart has had a number oh, of batman superman justice league books that they have been putting on the shelves so you don't have to go to a comic book store to find dc comics and what they've been doing when they package these books at walmart is it does have one new story in it and then it has a bunch of reprints in it and then as Maybe each volume it. comes out it continues on because i believe the batman one had the hush storyline i think or was it I think it was. Well, let me I tell think you, it, it doesn't say Halloween. that on the cover. <laughs> yeah, no, and so, so the other thing is, and I don't, and I'm sorry, somebody else out there who probably is following this a lot closer than I am can write to us at podcast at, at majorspoilers.com. I also remember that there was enough of a grump from the brick and mortars that I thought that DC was then going to take the Walmart exclusives because those comics were exclusive to Walmart and then yes. send them out to the retailers to the brick and mortar comic book shops. So this may also be not only a Walmart exclusive that may have come out a while ago. This may be the first time that it's finally going into comic book shops. So that may be, that may, I, hopefully that's the somewhat of an answer to your question, Ashley. Yes. Um, then that makes a little more sense. Cause I was just thinking about it from like, strictly a, a, um, a traditional comics or perspective. And I was like, why, why would you, why would this be happening now? Why, 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 why? Um, so that makes a little more sense because I think it's a great collection. If you are someone who is unfamiliar um, with Wonder Woman, I think this is a really great introduction to the character. I think this would make a great gift, but I think ultimately, like if you are a seasoned comic book reader, I don't think this is something that's going to be like flying off the shelves of, for, for your Wednesday warriors or, you know, for probably a lot of people reading this podcast. So I was like, again, I was just mired in confusion and you so simply explained it. So yeah. I'm pretty like, sure I, now that I'm looking at some of these, no, now that I'm looking at some of these older stories that are in here, I'm pretty sure that this is a Walmart book. Yes. Um, that makes uh, a lot more sense. Well, but no, it just reinforces what you said about how there's a lot of stuff in this book that if you're not familiar with wonder woman, this is really good for you to have. Yeah. Um, but so overall, I think it's, like I said, a great collection for newbies, for people who like either the shows or the movies and are just getting into comics. It'll be great 
in people's Christmas stockings if you want to like rush out to buying frenzy and hoard it until then. Uh, it is $4.99, which is pricey, but it's 80 pages. So you're getting a lot more bang for your buck when a regular 22 page comic is costing you $3.99. I would just say that if you're going to check this out, um, know what you're expecting and, and anticipating going into it and know or or know the audience that you're buying it for because I think I think it works for a very specific group of people. There you go. All right. What's the uh, bottom line uh, rating on this, Ashley? I'll give it a three out of five slices of meatloaf because it was All right. fun. All right. Thank you very much for that, Ashley. Thank you, Rodrigo, and thank you, Matthew. Listeners, if you want to get some more comic book reviews, the only place you need to go is Majorspoilers.com. Coming up this week, we have The Psylords, number five. We also have Titans Burning Rage, number three. Death Defying Devil, number three. Uh, Once in Future, number three. Lots of number threes coming out this week. Black Panther, Agent of Wakanda number, I believe it's two, coming out this week. All over at Majorspoilers.com. Go check them out. Plenty of reviews coming your way. Uh, Ashley Victoria Robinson, I know you're going to be in agreement with me. Uh, Dick Grayson is the greatest Robin there ever was. No. He's the, the sexiest right. Robin there He's ever the was. He's the sexiest Robin there ever was. <laughs> because we all know that the greatest Robin that ever was is one Tim Drake. That is an absolute scientific immutable fact. Fight me. <laughs> Don't have to fight you. I totally agree with you. You and I can <laughs> high five all the way down the street as yes. we go and get some ice cream. <laughs> yes. So uh, this week we're taking a look at Robin Reborn Volume 1. Now this is, I don't know if this is the very next volume after the death of Jason Todd, the death in the family story that we reviewed a couple of, uh, was about a month or two ago. Lonely Place of Dying? Yeah, Lonely Place of Dying. Uh, because there's a whole bunch of, of uh, <laughs> Tim Drake stuff that goes on in between the death of Jason Todd and this one. You know, like Tim Drake figuring out that Batman is Bruce Wayne because he saw footage of the flying Graysons do a trick. And then he saw footage of Nightwing do the same trick. And he put two and two together. Cause he's the smartest kid there ever was. He would be literally the greatest Batman replacement there ever was. If DC <sighs> would have gotten their stuff together. Oh, come on, Matthew, you know, it's true. I don't actually, you the don't, best, you don't uh, agree. The best Robin is the earth Two Robin. When he started wearing Batman's costume only with a big R and no mask. Oh yeah. 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 Um, a Lonely Place of Dying is Batman 440 through 443, something like that. Mm-hmm. This comes after A Lonely Place of Dying, dying, which comes after A Death in the Family. This is approximately two years after mm-hmm. the murder of A Death in the Family. But I don't know if there is another trade collection between the last volume that we read or not. There's not. I think in okay. terms of trades, you go right from Lonely Place of Dying to this. Right. But I'm yeah, pretty sure so... there are because we we start with, oh, I believe the first issue we we read a series of Detective Comics mm-hmm. issues, and I think Tim is around. You know yeah, what I is. mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but I I think this is the we sort of pick up with the next time he's kind of doing anything substantial because most of this book, or at least the first half of this, is detective comics stuff and Mm -hmm. it takes a minute before we actually get into like tim being robin and starting his training and the robin mini series is is, 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 because there were three before the ongoing series (laughs) yeah so it's really fascinating because if you're wanting to figure out well how come tim gets to live with bruce wayne and where are his parents oh man we get some uh crazy stories of his parents being kidnapped held for hostage and then murdered in a very 
kind of gruesome way. It was kind of like, oh, we thought that they were going to burn to death. No, we're going to poison them with the very water that they wanted to drink. And uh, I just thought course, that was a good, uh, good little twist. No, it was. Yeah, it it was really a, was. It was but nice it was sh- shocking and surprising. Number one. Uh, number two, we kill off uh, uh, Tim's mom. Dad is right. paralyzed yeah. at the end of this story. But well, uh, dad, dad is not long for this world. No, no, no. We, he we, lives like we, another decade, but in, in continuity, he only lasts like, I don't know, there a couple of years. Oh, he yeah, lives yeah, to yeah. identity crisis. Yeah. I, I'm, wondering, I'm wondering, though, Rodrigo, about the whole voodoo uh, part of this story. Oh, is it Loki racist? <laughs> I, I don't know. I think so. I think it's, it's super problematic. I mean, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of stuff going on. That is that, that you can lift an eyebrow at, like, uh, you know, I mean, like, the... oh, yeah, it's like he's the mayor of Chinatown. That's a criminal thing. Only right. criminals in Chinatown. Right. Kind of stuff. You know, it's like there's there's a lot of that going on. Um, well, just the whole uh, Obaman guy or yeah. Bia man or whatever you say that. Oh, Bia man. Is, he is straight up the villain from the James Bond uh, movie. Yeah, he's oh, Mister uh, Yeah, uh, Papa Midnight, whatever his name was. Yeah, he's Mr. straight up that character, Mister Saturday, or yeah. whatever. Yeah, Baron Samedi. Yeah, yeah, which is uh, literally Mister Saturday. I just want to say too, there is a lot of French in this book, and there is straight up a typo, which makes me laugh when he's oh, no, like that's... in France at the nightclub. Oh yeah, uh, Rodrigo is uh, infamous for his. Uh... Anytime we find any 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 Spanish in comic books, because it's usually wrong. Yeah, it's yeah. not that it's wrong. It's just like it's a typo. It should be an O instead of a Q, uh, and it uh, completely changes the the context of what right. they're saying. Instead of saying "psycho killer," qu'est-ce que say? They said "psycho killer." What? Exactly. <laughs> not good. Not good. So we have really, as Ashley's talking about, there's two parts to this story. First is. The the death of of Tim's mother and and him becoming more of a permanent ward of Bruce Wayne, and then the second part of this story turns into eighties action flick. If you are a fan of Bloodsport, if you are a fan of uh, any of those cheesy Jim martial Cutter. yes, any of those cheesy martial arts uh, drug lord kind of stuff from the eighties, the second half of this book is definitely up uh, uh, definitely for you. It's Chuck's Chuck Dixon's Missing in Action 2 is what it is. And it's kind of a shame because the first half, while still very 80s, seems to be... Stephen Grant writes a very different Robin than when mm-hmm. we really get into that series. And I don't know about you guys, but the transition from Norm Brayfogle to Tom Lyle, or Tom Grummet, I can't remember which. It's Tom Lyle. Tom mm-hmm. Lyle mm-hmm. knocks about five years off of Tim's face, and it has him go from looking 17 to looking 12. And it's really unnerving to me to see him off riding motorcycles and nearly getting killed when he's now 12. I think it's hilarious, the cover with the, where he's in, he's in front of the Eiffel Tower and he's got his arm up like in the classic mm-hmm. Dracula pose. Blah, uh, because blah. every time I look at that, I'm like, wow, Tim looks like he's 45. Yeah, no, blah, I don't, blah, I don't blah, like Well, that's that. Brian Boland. Brian yeah, Boland but on, on that, just on that particular cover, which is uh, the cover of the trade as well. I did like well, the he's trying to hide the here. fact that he's actually Ed Wood's dentist. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I like the I like the cover. I like I think it's well composed and I love the red background. But that the, the way the face is constructed is a little hilarious. Yeah. I'm I'm curious. Uh, anybody can answer on this. When Batman turns his uh, Batmobile into silent mode, considering where we are today, 
is he just flipping it from gas or diesel or nuclear power to electric vehicle? I really think it is. No, he's actually got silencers that go. I really think it's an electric vehicle because, man, you can be walking an electrical vehicle can like slide up right behind you. Never even know that it was there. Anyway, uh, Rodrigo, any thoughts on the first uh, half of the story? Death of, of Tim's mom and him uh, disobeying Batman and really showing that he can become Robin. I mean, it's it's nice to, to a certain degree to have like a kind of a self-actualized Robin, mm-hmm. you know, like a, a Robin that wanted that wants to be Robin. And, and you know, as opposed to like the definitely the previous one who kind of fell into it. And then was mostly Batman just being like, can you be less of a psycho most of the time? Um, so that's nice. Uh, you know, obviously, kind of like the the deal with Batman stories in general is that you can't you can't get there without like just absolute misery and like trashing somebody's life. Mm-hmm. And then it seems like you flip a page and it's like, and now I'm Robin. Yay. Like jumping around and stuff. It's like, yeah, but you know, it's like you, you don't get there without killing the mom and you can't get there without like, it's like once again, just like seeing like at least metaphorically, like pearls scattering across the sidewalk. Right. So mm-hmm. it, it, I mean, it's thematic for Batman. It's like in Spider-Verse, how people are like, well, your uncle has to die. Otherwise you can't be Spider-Man like it it feels like that for batman too and i don't i don't know if i'm happy about that but you know at least it's thematically consistent yeah, yeah. no i get i see where you're coming from i see where you're coming from on that uh matthew any thoughts on the first half uh let's become robin i think that the real star of the first half is norm brayfogle uh, yeah who actually passed away just a couple of years ago yeah but Bray Fogel on Batman is amazing because it has some of the the construction and storytelling that I would expect from someone like Aparo or Irv Novik, somebody very old school, very solid. But it also has this weird freaky deaky kind of Todd McFarlane influence mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. you know, he, it's not like 19 foot long bat horns like you get from Kelly Jones or <sighs> capes that are impossible. But you get moments where Batman is in action and he's kind of moving across a you know a background, and you see the big floopy cape that actually looks like a bat. And his Wayne Manor feels more like an actual house, yes, albeit a giant house, than almost anyone in this era. He does the most realistic backgrounds and settings and stuff. It's really nice. I do. I, I think I like the fluidity that he brings to Batman in all the actions. He just understands the curve in the motions and the lines and everything that he's doing so that it almost feels like when I read Norm Brayfogle's Batman, it feels like I'm seeing proto Batman, the animated series, right? In that opening sequence where, you know, Batman is ducking and weaving and fighting those guys on the rooftop. It just feels like that was kind of where they kind of got the idea was from Norm Brayfogle stuff. Um, I still hate that Batmobile, but I, but I really like his, his art style. I can live with that Batmobile for one reason and one reason only. Brave Fogel's arm scallops are the best ever because they look like little knives. Mm-hmm. And you just know that Batman uses those arm scallops to chop his way through, you know, doors and take down trees and leap from tree to tree and 
I don't know, maybe count some wildflowers, but just amazing use of the cape and the, the mm -hmm. helm. And oh, the yeah, it looks great. All but, this stuff is great. But the Batmobile, no, not so much. Eh, uh, it's not a terrible Batmobile. I mean, it's a little wide. That's why I was, I mean, just, that's why I asked about, is it an EV vehicle? And that's why it has also, to be so wide because it's the 1980s and you had to have like 67 uh, big old batteries in there to keep it powered for half a block. It's it's basically a flat, streamlined version of the 1940s Batmobile that was like a giant police car with a razor-sharp bat head on the front. It's mm -hmm. just that kind of smoothed out with a Play-Doh fork. How many of you okay, get, I want to know, what's uh -huh. everyone's favorite Batmobile design? I am a fan of the Batman the Animated Series, which I know is derivative of the 88-89 Batman. Yeah. But I really like that. I really like that Batmobile. And I know it's just impossible that it that car shouldn't be able to turn a corner. We don't need to worry about physics. This is comics. I know, but I mean, it's, to me, it is, it is really the most beautiful of all Batmobiles. Uh, and then if I had to rank them after that, I would probably say, and I know this is the, this is like the dumbest Batmobile, but that 1940s sedan that had the big old Batman face on the front. Even we the love the face. same Batmobiles. Those are my two favorites. And too. then the, then my third favorite Batmobile would be 69 Batmobile, uh -huh. right? Or 66 Batman, sorry. And then yeah, the George the, Barris design. Yeah, and then the fifth one. Matthew, remember that weird Batmobile that you, you showed me that was like the proto 66 Batman design? That was mm -hmm. like a, what who what was that one? It was like, that had was a, a big Corvette. old, yeah, a Corvette that had like a big fan on the back. Mm -hmm. That one Those was would one be my top possible five. designs for the 66 Batmobile. Yeah. The only correct answer is George Barris' 66 Batmobile well, with it's, the it's, atomic it's, batteries power. Yeah, no, I mean, but uh, those would be my five favorite Batmobiles. Matthew, do you have any besides the 66? No, there are no others. All right. Well, that's not true. I love Batmobiles. I really do love the one that had the big fin on the front, and if they, they did the cutaways, and it's got this huge lab inside. The big 40s that looks like something that, you know, Richie Cunningham's dad was driving around, like a 1946 DeSoto with mm -hmm. wings on the back. That's nice. Mm -hmm. Rodrigo, do you, have a, do you have five favorite, or do you have your favorite Batmobiles? Uh, my, probably my favorite one is the 66 Batmobile, but I think I like it mostly because it actually kind of breaks the mold in that it's so red, like it's mm -hmm. got so much red on it. Mm -hmm. It's got all those like red accents, which isn't, which isn't really Batman. Batman doesn't really do red. Um, and, and I think that's probably why, because, you know, I like the, uh, animated series Batmobile. I like the, what, 89 uh batmobile as well but those are just like matte black right mm -hmm. so you know that's that's cool but i don't know there's something about the old uh, adam west batmobile that i think looks really good and kind of and it looks like a functional car because it had to be yeah, you know yeah, yeah. so it's like unlike like the the Miller slash Nolan like this is actually a tank but also it can like tumble around and jump the tumbler, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, yeah. little little known fact about that '66 uh, Batmobile: all the red accents were the place that places that were armor plated. All the rest oh. weren't. It'd make the car too heavy. So the villains would look at the red stuff and want to shoot at the red. 
It's a true fact, Matthew. Look it up. Ashley, besides the ones that I had mentioned, you said we were right on one Those and two and three? Those are my two favorite Batmobiles. Okay. Like, there's um, an arcade game where you basically drive around in a Batmobile and save Gotham City, and I oh, those are the two I always pick. All I right. just think the, like, OG 40s one with the bat on the front is so oh, man, that is so funny. ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, but it, it works for that world of that time, and that's why I love it so. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so let's get back to uh, 80s action movie. Uh, to me, I was just like missing in action three. It just did not. I mean, have you guys seen? How many of you have seen Bloodsport? I, I no, no. I've okay, I've seen Bloodsport. I've seen Cyborg. I've seen Jim Cotta, and they're essentially all, all of the Jean uh, Jean Claude Van Damme movies. Is what this felt yeah. like. Yeah, and Everyone a lot has of Steven the same Seagal bad haircuts. Movies. Well, okay. it was the '90s. It was the early '90s, and the mullets were in, and the big spiky hair, like mm-hmm. you just dipped your head into wax every morning that was totally in if you actually look at lynx's hair it gets higher and higher and higher every time we see her because that's that's how hair looked in the 90s that's one thing that we can't get away from this discussion without talking about is is this the first introduction of king snake yes i think so because he first becomes a re- king snake first appearance of Lynx. Lynx, and also yeah. you know we get uh lady shiva is in here although this Who is, is not her colored first... incredibly dark compared to um Everyone how else. we usually see her yeah uh, well you mean you mean her look, skin yeah like i look i if people aren't familiar with my love of tim drake i love this collection i love this volume but there's some real weirdness in here. And I, you know, she's usually now in, in a modern context, she's quite pale with the contrasting dark hair. And she's, I mean, they straight up just took a brown crayon and that's how yeah. her skin is colored. And, and I, I'm used to like the post kind of mm-hmm. animated series view of that character where she just kind of looks like Talia. And I was surprised by that. Yeah, the thing about that you have to remember about Shiva is that she dates back to the kung fu craze of the 70s. Oh, yeah. And in her first appearances in Richard Dragon back in like 75, she was drawn as a Chinese national, which is to say bright orange, because that's the color... That's that, the color that they used for Asians during the time. If you re- if you read any I, old Shang Chi, I understand mm-hmm. that, but that like cr- crushes my delicate sensibilities now. Well, and oh, that's no, the it, thing. But uh, but what you're saying is we're seeing a a subtle whitewashing of her character over time, right? I'm not necessarily saying that. I uh, I guess maybe I am. Um, or it's just know, something maybe, that you're maybe noticing. Maybe that's my that's my ignorance in like when I look at, uh, um. You know, when I imagine a, a Chinese person in my mind, like I'm thinking of someone like Gemma Chan, who's quite pale. Um, so like to have her colored that dark, I was like, mm-hmm. is this an error? Was this the style of the time? Why did it change? It's just something that struck me and I did absolutely no research into why it happened. <laughs> well, so it, it is right. So it's like when you start getting into uh depictions of non-white people in uh, especially drawn media like comics and animation it's just it's just a minefield right it's like i mean sure it's like maybe they were just uh trying to not make her a a terrible orange caricature yeah and just giving her dark skin and then it's like is that a bad thing it's like there are lots of chinese people who have very dark skin yes that's absolutely true and that's usually uh... Yeah, usually the uh, the ones that we see 
are like the ones that get picked up by Hollywood have remarkably light skin. Mm-hmm. Um, right. This this happens everywhere. Like if you uh, if you've ever watched telenovelas, you will find that you know in in Mexico there are light skinned you know blonde people, and they all make it onto the telenovelas because that's you know they're, mm-hmm. they're just kind of where uh, mm-hmm. society kind of pushes that towards. So yeah, I mean it's it's kind of a it's kind of a mess. Um, so I, I wouldn't say like, yes, she should have darker skin because then you start like sliding back towards that previous depiction. And it's like, well, should her skin be lighter? It's like, well, then you start sliding towards right. uh, those kind of like modern or, or, or Western ideals of beauty. Mm-hmm. So it's, mm-hmm. it's right. a mess is what I'm, it is. I'm not sure like what the best option for depicting yeah. Lady Shiva is, but it's something uh, I wanted to bring up because oh, no, you're right. it's always interesting to when like, you know, people are always like comic book, it's pop art, it's not real art, but like it kind of confronts you with like, oh yeah, you know, like I said, like when I think of a Chinese person, I think of Gemma Chan and Rodrigo raised a very uh, salient point that uh, not all Chinese people look like that and Western standards of beauty are really weird, but it's like when you are reflecting on older media, it's hard to be like, is this a good thing? Right, it's a very right. bad thing. Where does this Where does this come from? Right, I it's don't like know. what are you What are you telling me, book? Yeah. yeah. Historically speaking, from my perspective, what we see here is an improvement, especially mm-hmm. over some of the things we saw in the '80s. She was in uh, the Questions comic a lot, and that book had some really dark flexographic printing, which meant that you have points where she again would come out as kind of a, an orangey color. I feel like the page that I remember is in like issue two or three where Shiva's coming over the fence and you see Robin and Clyde and you have that contrast of Clyde, who's African-American and mm-hmm. Tim, who's who's completely transparent. And then you have yeah, Shiva, truly. kind of a, a brown tone in between. I'm really sort of fine with that right there being her baseline sort of, you know, skin tone. Sure. But Modern stories have have changed. Well, and so as I'm as I'm doing some very quick Google search, uh, Mm. as I look at some stuff when she's in some Outsiders comics and other stuff in the in the 70s and 80s, uh, her skin color does bounce around quite a bit. Oh yeah, she's all over the place. Yeah. How much? Because I believe Sandra Wusan, which is her real vibe, is in fact biracial. You mean Cassandra Kane's mom? Yeah, Cassandra Kane's <laughs> mom is in fact biracial, if I'm not mistaken. I may be wrong on this, but I think that depending on, you know, which side of her heritage they're emphasizing, yeah. she also has a very wide range of how many what we consider the stereotypical Eastern or Chinese features she has. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How Asian does she look? And it's just kind of all over the place. Yeah. Wow. And- it, you know, it's so. not even necessarily on purpose so much as like, does this artist know how to like draw epicanthic right. folds? Mm-hmm. Right. And many of them don't, especially if you look at her appearances in Birds of Prey under Ed Bennis. She looks exactly like the Huntress with a different haircut. Yeah. So, you know, it's... I, mm, eh. Well, I'm yeah. sorry, uh, go, go look at her, with it here. Go look it's at her mask. in uh, the uh, DC Superhero Girls yeah. for a totally different look. So well, Wait. yeah, and the DC superhero girls, they definitely push that like Chinese garb. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's She's like it superhero girls? Yeah, yeah and, and Cass uh, isn't, which is such what? a Wait. And Cheshire is Wait. as well. 
Yeah. Lady Shiva and Cheshire, who are assassins. Yep. Killer Frost is in it too. Multiple and... murder people who kill. Lady Shiva kills just I, for fun. I mean, high school. The Superhero Girls is like that kids' universe where, like, yeah. you know, the I've lion and the that. gazelle get along. Nobody fights each other. I mean, right. poison, like <laughs> poison ivy's in it, right? Like, she, yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Like, like, he's got this... like mass murder or poison ivy, like right away, right? right. Yeah, like Harley right. Quinn. It's Very all super cute, people. Super fun, good times. Anyway, uh, I'm sorry that we got off on the no, Lady no, no. Shiva. You you did two perfect uh, derailments here of the conversation, and they were great. Batmobiles and Lady Shivas. Also, Lynx. I forgot that Lynx had her first appearance in here and very quickly got her eyes pulled out by uh, by King Snake, who is what really I? just uh, Johnny Cage uh, on Johnny on steroids. So if you're no, wanting I to would... figure out, the only difference is uh, uh, King Snake is uh, blind. So right. that becomes a kind of a cool thing as a. Uh, Tim's character develops over the next, what is it, Robin 1, Robin 2, and Robin 3 uh, story arcs. Right. This is the first Robin, then there's Robin 2, and then Robin 3. The thing about King Snake that annoys me, King Snake is like a distillation of a thousand different uh, kung fu movie stereotypes. Yes. Yeah, tropes. He's, he's blind, but he's the best combatant ever. And of course... Don't you talk about Daredevil like that? He's the best combatant ever, and it's you know, his appearances always have this element of you know the great white hunter coming in to take over the land of savages, and it's just offensive to me. I hate King Snake so much, and you'd think that I, of all people, would appreciate a big buff dummy with a cobra tattooed on his chest, but I just I cannot stand this character, and I've never really been able to articulate why. But I think part of it is because he that represents he sucks. imperialism, right? I think you're right. That's definitely a part of it. But to be fair, King Snake is bad. True. Right? It's like this might not be what they were going, but if you take a step back and you look at King Snake, it's like, yes, he is a white dude who comes in and is more badass than all the Asian people that he then proceeds to boss around. Um, but that's imperialism for you. And he's the bad guy, you know? And it's like, uh, you, I don't know, like his underlings are like afraid of them you don't really see them like you know we don't get a lot of conversations where they're like in the cafeteria like resetting <laughs> their terrible boss <laughs> and the fact that they have to learn english even though yeah uh, they're although I'm sure, I'm all this sure whole story also, takes place in france so yeah i'm, I'm sure king snake is also a polyglot because that it seems like the sort of character who would also be a master of many languages mm -hmm. right it's um, funny but, because t tim keeps commenting on the multiple languages being spoken yeah. and he seems rather helpless, which is interesting because we think of him as being the smart Robin and a mastery well, of language definitely gets lumped in with that later on in his uh, series. Yeah, because be of fair. this, he, he felt very uh, out of it. So he learned every language after this. Being the smartest Robin is kind of like being the valedictorian <laughs> in a Cleveland night school. I mean, it's an achievement, certainly, but you have to look at the competition. That's mean. I shouldn't say that about Cleveland. I will say that about Jason Todd. I feel the same way with Dick Grayson's characterization, though. I remember reading a book and they had Dick Grayson use the word elucidate. And my brain immediately went, in no universe does Dick Grayson know or use with ease the word elucidate. That is a Tim Drake word. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yep, 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 yep. I, well, I think uh, part of the reason why we have, like, acrobat robin um like tough brawler guy robin smart robin 
and then other Robins is because <laughs> other Robins. Sure. Robin Robin Sparkles, Robin uh, Daggers. You know, and, and actually for that for that re- for that matter, later on baby sociopath Robin mm-hmm. is because Batman is like a completely unbelievable character. Like at, even at this point and even before this, like Batman is too many things. He's got too many things going on and when they write new characters with him it's like it makes no. It's like no one can be Batman's equal because he's completely unrealistic. So right. that's why we end up with these Robins that are much more grounded, like extensions of all of the facets of Batman. Um, like spoil yeah, little, I can see that. Like and spoiled especially... sociopath, incredible detective, like amazing acrobat, like you know, unstoppable brawler, like all of these. Robins are just like can only be a fraction of that. But we see in the essentially four different things that are going on with Tim Drake in this that he encompasses all that, right? He is, I don't want to disobey my boss, but I'm going to show him that I can be a good Robin by going out and and solving a crime and saving Batman. So that's number one. Then we see him going out and figuring out that the person robbing all the money is anarchy. Yes, anarchy shows up in this comic for a hot second. He means uh, baby the Joker. Yes, baby the Joker, baby wannabe Joker. Then we see him become uh, action movie star and also super, super smart Robin. So he covers kind of all that range of everything that Batman is in each one of these little mini arcs that go throughout this volume. So I think this is another justification, another win in the Ashley and Steven corner for Tim Drake is the greatest uh, Robin <laughs> of all time. And, uh, you know, even though... I don't remember. I remember reading these when they originally came out and just being like, oh, man, this is really cool. I really dig what's going on. I really like this new Robin much better than the old Robin. Uh, I remember getting into this stuff and King Snake dying at the end, but I don't remember having any or quote unquote dying at the end. I don't remember having any real feelings like, oh, my God, this is the greatest villain of all. No, no, because it's so weird that he comes back for two more. Robin arcs. I w- I don't think any of Tim Drake's rogues gallery are any good. Well, yeah, I mean, it's so hard. the The thing is, is like, it's really difficult to establish a new character and give them, uh, like, good enough villains. Like, it's incredibly hard. I mean, mm-hmm. you can you can look at established. DC characters or or Marvel characters who like people know and love and they show up in lots of stuff and the row galleries are still garbage. There's a reason why somebody turned like somebody managed to flip that for the Flash and be like, hey, you know all those, you know how Flash villains are garbage. Let's play with that and let's make that interesting. So now that's like a, a, a feature of Flash mm-hmm. villains, right? And they kind um, of tried to do that a little bit with Robin, right? Because Anarchy at one point started to turn towards the neutral side instead of chaotic evil side. They do the same thing with Sportsmaster, like later on in mm-hmm. the in this series. They try to they give him like some redemptive moments and then he goes back to being a bad dad. But when so you compare have... like like Tim's villains to like, you know, Dick Grayson has several villains that are standouts that he either adopted or were defined by him, like with Slade Wilson and Blockbuster. I don't think Mm -hmm. Tim has those same type of characters. So who are Tim's main villains? So we have, in this arc, we have Lynx and King Snake. We have Anarchy. We have um, 
uh, what did you say, Sportsmaster? Sportsmaster. He fights a toy maker a bit, or one of the toy makers. Mm-hmm. Who um, else is in his rogues gallery, do you guys think? Well, let's see. Who did he's got Tim a great arc fight? against the penguin in To Kill a Bird. Yeah, I, would I would say An- Anarchy is definitely up there. Uh, does Dr. Light count? I want to say he... Oh, interesting. Oh, yeah. With, he uh, had some Dr. Light run-ins. He had yeah. some stuff. He doesn't have uh, a really strong rogues gallery, right? I mean, it kind of... Didn't, didn't Killer Moth get mutated into a giant moth yes, he monster? Did. Yes. Into Chrysalis, Chrysalis or whatever Ch- his name was? Chiraxis. Chiraxis, that's what it is. Yeah. Chiraxis. I am Chiraxis. Yeah. And then he had... Uh, maybe I'm thinking of Nightwing had... Um, uh, Bibble Snort uh, was uh, the guy with no face. Um, what is his name? Onomatopoeia? No. Onomatopoeia is a, a Green Arrow villain. Uh, it doesn't matter. There aren't any. I think there's the General. Wasn't there the General? Oh, yeah, the General. The yeah. little pr- the proto, general who was like proto uh, Damian Wayne. Proto Damian right. Wayne, the General. He's evil yeah. and he's also going to get you, you know, low rate car insurance. <laughs> It'll worry anyone you hit. The all right, cheapest so, of all commercials and yet always on in the hotel rooms. Yeah. Sure. So we've jumped all over the place in discussing this book, but I think we've touched on some of the major things. For so, me. Tim Drake's villains suck. Yeah. For me, if you are a Tim Drake fan, which you should be, uh, I think this is a really good read to pick up. If you're a fan of. 80s action movies, like not the really good action movies of the 80s, but the mid-range to low-end action movies of the 80s, and you love all that cheese, and you love the the martial arts that's in there, then you definitely want to pick up this volume. If you want to see parents getting... If if you want to see parents getting murdered, eh, I mean, if that's what you want to see, then this is a book for you. I will say, they do... Tim Drake's going through the motions of grief, I find to be very true... Um, Mm -hmm. and very effective. Like I tweeted this earlier with the panel where he's like, I'm going to my mommy's funeral, like makes me cry every single time I read it. Yeah. 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 So that's my bottom line is I say, this is a must read. Ashley, what about you? Yeah, man. Tim Drake's the greatest Robin who ever Robin. So you gotta, I think this is a better jumping on point than lonely place of dying. I think Mm -hmm. lonely place of dying is very intrinsically tied to death in the family. Um, so if you're not willing to do that work, this is a great, it's a great jumping on point. And, this series and the character only gets better from here. So if you can deal with the nonsense and the questionable coloring and the misspelling of foreign languages, I think you're going to like what's going to happen. Matthew. The first half of this book, the Grant and Bray Fogel stuff is quite solid to a point where I would recommend this collection. If it were just that the second half is Chuck Dixon, Chuck Dixoning. And for every good moment, of the Robin miniseries, you get a moment where you're just like, are are they literally implying Truly. here that that Robin is a superior combatant because his friend is black? Because you mm. you yet yeah, no, and I know it it may be oversensitivity, but it was there and it was oh, no. in the story. The, the only like, thing that was missing was the high shot and him holding him screaming no, no, yeah, so. First half of this book would be a must read. The second half of this book has enough flaws that I would say it's a check it out. It's not bad stuff. It's certainly not the best Robin in the world from Earth 2 with the Batman (laughs) suit that has the R on the chest. I'll post a picture of it on my Twitter sometime. You'll see it. Rodrigo. It's good. What do you got? I mean, uh, if you want to figure out who Tim Drake is, historically, this 
uh, volume is important again, like 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 was said, more important than even the introduction of Tim Drake, right? This is him being Robin. This is when we get to start to see him be Robin. That said, I, I, there was really no real point in this book where I was like super into it. And I think it's just that there's just this space in comics and Batman comics, especially where I just kind of see things that were executed on purpose, but have been since amplified in, in the character of Batman and stuff. And it just like turns me off immediately. Mm. Um, and weirdly, I kind of came back on when it did become a, a uh, like a Kung Fu movie pastiche. Yeah. So I kind of had like the reverse uh, reaction. I, th- I think that 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 Matthew did, but it's a check it out uh, from the library for me. I, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't pick this up myself. All right. Well, we're going to continue to see how great Robin is later this year, right around Christmas time. In fact, when we take a look at Robin Merry triumphant Christmas to Ashley. <laughs> Merry Christmas, Actually, Ashley. In Canada, they don't call it Christmas; they call it Felder. Cross Moose. Cross moose. <laughs> Angry moose just looking at you. I, I, you have if made you bad life choices, Ashley. moose content, and you can scroll back through my Twitter feed about two days, I tweeted a video of an albino moose. It was oh very fancy. I did see that. It was like, whoa, check it out. But yeah, like that creature's going to send you on a quest. All right. Uh, so we got Robin coming up uh, later this year. But next week, we're going to be taking a look back into the Spider-Verse as we take a look at Silk, the life and times of yes! Cindy Moon. But for now, <laughs> that is where we're going to end this issue. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you for being part of the Major Spoilers Experience. As always, we love your feedback. So to tell Stephen and Ashley that they're wrong about who the greatest Robin is, head to the <laughs> comment section at Major Spoilers to share your thoughts, your reactions, and follow me, back me up on the Earth to Robin for this episode. Or you can always send us an email to podcast at Majorspoilers.com. And don't forget, there was that robot Robin from DC One Million. But uh, I have a commission of that character because he's great. But you can support the show and everything we do by becoming a Patreon, a patron at Patreon.com/slash/MajorSpoilers. And There's don't forget, if you want to have Robin in the Chinese Justice League, sorry. And if you want to have even more fun with us, don't forget to check out our Discord server, where you can come in and argue and debate Robin to and. Until the sun comes up, until the cows come home, until Robin uh, lays an egg and the Joker gets away. I don't know, but uh, we're going to be back next week because we know that you love comics and we know that you do too. And we will talk with you soon. Stop talking about comic books or I'll kill you. I don't care if the Hulk could defeat the Man of Steel. I'm going to rearrange your things. This podcast is copyright 2019 by Major Spoilers Entertainment, LLC.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.